Believe it or not, we have now reached an important tipping point in our story. As you might have noticed, with the exception of our look at the ancient native populations some five episodes ago, most of what we've been covering so far has been the history of people, places, and events adjacent to Arizona. The main actors, and this is the case with Cabeza de Vaca, Coronado, Oñate, Kino, Anza, and others, did not live in Arizona. They passed through it several times and play a large part in its story, but they were not Arizonans. Well, now that has changed. We can stop couching everything in terms of, and this relates to Arizona because, and start talking about the men and women who actually settled in the Pimaria Alta. Even though we are still a long way away from statehood, just please don't ask me how long because that seems to change the more I read and try to write things into a coherent narrative, we are finally to the point where we can talk about a history that is distinctive to Arizona. So, without further ado, let this new chapter in state history begin. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 9, Two Back. As you might recall from our episode last week, part of this new settlement comes from the reintroduction of several Jesuits to the various missions along the Santa Cruz River and ranch operators working for the Ansa family. To take the former first, we have Father Ignacio Keller, who you might remember Anza installed at the mission of Santa Maria de Suamca, just beyond the international border in Sonora, east of Nogales. Keller, like most of his brethren, had a desire to return to the Hobies and convince them to rejoin the one true faith. To this end, he made a couple stabs at heading northward. The first, in 1736, with the encouragement of Ansa, found him following the Santa Cruz River all the way to its confluence with the Gila. On this trip, and possibly others up to the natives living along the Gila, Keller is said to have seen the Casa Grande. Early state historian Thomas Farish adds that Keller found many of the rancherias from Kino's time had been, quote, broken up, which probably means the natives who used to live there had returned to their previous semi-nomadic lifestyles. It appears Keller made more incursions up to the Gila River, at least one of the oldest state histories make reference to multiple trips, but he definitely returned in 1743 on a more ambitious mission. Keller decided, come hell or high water, he was going to visit the Hopis. It turns out that something worse than either of those things would halt the expedition. Keller and his group had made it only a few days north of the Gila when hostile natives, most likely belonging to those perennial Spanish boogeymen, the Apaches, drove him back. Soon afterward, another Jesuit by the name of Jacob, or in Spanish, Jacobo, Seldemeyer tried his own hand at making it northward. Heading out from the mission at Tubatama, which sits southwest from Nogales, Sedemeyer had reached the Gila River in 1743. In 1744, he also proposed to make it to the Hopis. According to the account found in historian James H. McClintock's History of Arizona, the priest eventually found himself visiting rancherias inhabited by Papagos, Pimas, and Cocomeric Copas. These did their level best to dissuade Seldemeyer, saying that it was impractical to keep continuing northward. So instead of heading northeast, he went to the northwest. Eventually, like Oñate more than a century earlier, he reached the confluence of the Bill Williams River with the Colorado. One source has Seldemeyer making one more excursion into Arizona several years later, 
arriving among the Yumas or Quechan peoples along the Colorado in 1749. A funny aside to all this is that when the Franciscans in New Mexico learned that another order was trying to preach to the Hopis, they also sent their own missionaries. Because if anyone is going to reconvert those apostates, gosh dang nabbit, it's going to be the people who lost them in the first place. Historian James Officer reports that while there were several baptisms, most likely among the Navajos rather than the Hopis themselves, by the middle of the century, no one was any closer to restarting the missions in northern Arizona. Along with the increased missionary work among the natives, we also start to see the arrival of actual inhabitants of European descent near the missions. Before the end of the 1730s, the records of the Guavavi mission is already showing Spanish surnames, such as Romero, Nunez, and Fernandez. On February 14, 1740, 172 years exactly before Arizona became a state, a priest at Tubac performed marriages for people with the surnames Ortega, Barba, Villa, and Duran. As we saw a bit last week, mining and livestock were now economic incentives for some people to try their hand in the Pimaria Alta. However, many people now coming into these areas did not have land grants for these operations, and instead illegally settled on mission land that technically was set aside for the natives. The priests seem to have allowed this in places such as Aravaca, Sopari, Tubac, Tumacacri, and Quivavi, due to a nod-wink understanding and a desire to have more what they called gente de razón around. Gente de razón, or people of reason, could be a generic term for someone who was Christian, but also had the more narrow legal definition of being of European descent. Natives were usually classified as gente sin razón, or people without reason, which gave them the status of minors in Spanish law. Of course, if this podcast has taught us one thing so far, it's that if your system becomes oppressive or exploitative enough, something somewhere will burst into flames. The arrival of new land-stealing squatters, possibly in league with the Jesuit priests, started stacking the fuel for the eventual bonfire. Also, don't forget that native populations are still being ravaged from time to time by those awful diseases that cut huge swaths in their population. This seems to be the case in the 1740s among the Odom who were living at the missions. Another factor is that the priests may have been overworking their charges. One source says Father Joseph Garucho at Guavavi ignored royal decrees limiting to three days the amount of time natives could work royal lands. Also, in their zeal for the natives to be productive farmers, perhaps to entice more of their brethren to settle in rancherias and do the same, the Jesuits may have become a little heavy-handed in their uh, inducements. Part of this is a self-feeding cycle. As the natives under their watch declined due to disease, they would try to entice other groups to come and fill the vacancy. But to do that, they need to show how productive farming was, which meant getting the natives to be more productive, and oh, there are those heavy-handed inducements again. And piled on top of everything is just individual personalities. While they have their supporters, Father Keller at Swampka and Father Gorucho at Guavavi were considered patronizing by many of the natives. It also didn't help that Keller, by all accounts, was an alcoholic. The final match that lit the bonfire is that Keller and his fellow priests were incredibly territorial about their charges and what they saw as any type of outside interference. Like so many wars, rebellions, and revolutions throughout human history, 
The coming conflict was brought on through something that in any other climate would not have come anywhere close to the carnage it unleashed. You see, among the Acamel Odom auxiliaries that served the Spanish military was a man from the rancheria of Saric named Luis Oaxapega Guija, who I hope you will forgive me for simply calling Luis from here on out. Luis and a force of roughly 400 fighting men had recently helped the governor and captain general of Sinaloa, Sonora, Diego Ortiz Parrilla, wage a successful war against the Seri tribes in Mexico. Flushed with victory, Parrilla designated the charismatic Luis as the native captain general of the Pimaria Alta. Luis seems to have relished in this new title, passing out splendid gifts and hosting feasts for his fellow Odom, and adopted Spanish dress and habits. The only problem is Parrilla had given Luis his captaincy general without consulting the Jesuits. He possibly made this move because, just to add one more wrinkle, Parrilla detested the Jesuits. Like many, the governor believed they used their power at missions to control all the best land in the area. So elevating Luis, who the missionaries considered vain and overly ambitious, was as good a way to spit in their eye as any. Seriously annoyed by this, and likely inebriated, Keller was in a foul mood when Luis and his entourage arrived at Swampka in the fall of 1751 on their way to join a planned campaign against the Apaches. During a confrontation with Luis, Keller berated and humiliated him for dressing as if he were a Spanish officer. Keller is reported to have snarled, quote, You should be in a breechcloth with bows and arrows like a chichamaco, end quote. Chichimeco was an insult meeting a barbarian Amerindian, and other accounts have Keller telling the man he was, quote, a Chichimeco dog, and should be chasing rabbits and rodents through the hills. His honor deeply insulted, whatever goodwill Luis had for the Spanish disappeared in that instant. After this confrontation, Luis began plotting an uprising with his fellow Pimas, who had heard about the insult to this brave warrior who had been whining and dining them since his promotion. So on November 20th and 21st, 1751, multiple Pima settlements rose up at once, killing Spanish settlers and burning what they could. Most sources only say that more than 100 people were killed during the uprising, with one source saying that the number was as high as 150. Among the victims were 13 people in Aravaca, along with at least two Jesuit priests, one at Caborca and the other one at Sonoida. Massive damage was done to San Javier del Bac, Guivavi, and Tubac, with soldiers who would later ride through there noting that everyone had fled from the area. Once news reached Parilla, he had to send a force to squash the nascent rebellion. This force reached Aravaca, with additional reinforcements arriving on January 2nd, 1752. Perhaps it's because Parilla knew Luis personally, or perhaps because he had no love for Keller and his fellow Jesuits, but the standing order was to be as lenient as possible. Three native messengers were sent to the rebels, then held up in the Babobkivari Mountains, to negotiate an end to the hostilities. They said that Parilla had already pardoned Luis, and this could all end if he would just give up. But these messengers were rebuffed. One of them was actually killed, while another decided to switch sides and join the rebels. With a battle now a foregone conclusion, both sides prepared. On January 5th, the Pima forces, who may have numbered up to 2,000, 
attack the 86 Spanish troops in Aravaca. Even then, though, the battle turned into something of a rout. It seems to have been a matter of better training and the advantages of a dug-in position, but the Battle of Aravaca ended up with 43 dead Pima and only two injured on the Spanish side. Luis and his forces had to pull back. Of those left dead at Aravaca was one of his sons. The rebels retreated to the Santa Catalinas, but the rebellion had lost most of its forward momentum. Many of the Pima began to reappear at the missions, asking for forgiveness. Luis himself would ride into Tubac on March 18, 1752, and turn himself over to the authorities. Remarkably, given everything we talked about so far up to this point, he was not punished. He swore allegiance to God and the king, and that was that. Not everything could instantly go back to normal. Aravaca was abandoned for some time afterward. Today, if you visit the cemetery in Aravaca, there is a small plaque near the entrance commemorating the battle. In the aftermath, the Jesuits tried to blame Perilla, while the Captain General blamed the priests right back. The Jesuits were eventually exonerated for any role in the uprising, and by 1754, the priests, who had obviously fled for their lives, had returned to their missions. Unlike the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, it seems that the Pima Revolt of 1751 had ultimately resulted in nothing. Or at least nothing for the Pima rebels. The revolt did have one fairly large impact for the Spanish who wished to exercise better control along the Santa Cruz River between Guavavi and San Javier del Bac. In the aftermath of the revolt, it was decided that this area needed a more immediate response to threats. And so, in late 1752, a presidio was established between these two missions. We are, of course, talking about the one and only Tubac. As an Odom settlement, Tubac probably extends back into the misty past, long before the Spanish arrived. The first reference we have in the European historical record comes from Father Campos, who mentions baptizing children and taking a siesta in, quote, this pleasant place, end quote. As we have seen, it was a visita for the mission at Guavavi, now bearing the more religious name of San Ignacio de Tubac, and its buildings have been damaged during the 1751 Pima Revolt. Now, it's important to note that the Presidio established at Tubac was not some walled fortress like we might imagine. The captain's quarters was somewhat fortified, but there was no high wall or palisade where they could close the gates in case of attack. Rather, the buildings that made up the Presidio were set on a spot of high ground, why the Odom villagers lived and worked in fields closer to the actual river. A lieutenant who was part of an inspection in the 1760s noted simply that, quote, all construction at this presidio is of adobe, end quote. Even with the new presidio, the 1750s continued to be full of conflict and disorder. Population numbers at the various rancherias and visitas overseen by the missionaries continued to decline, this was partially through the ravages of diseases, but also as more and more natives decided to throw off the yoke of the Spanish altogether. And though revolutionary leader Luis was now dead, I mean, he's actually dead at this point, and gone, there were still more than a handful of his rebel band hanging around and more would-be leaders waiting in the wings. In 1756, a native man from along the Gila River named Juani Mo'o, or Raven's Head, was stirring up discontent among the Odom people along the Santa Cruz. 
With an intense dislike for Christianity, he convinced other like-minded people to attack San Javier del Bac, pillage the church, and attempt to kill the priest there. This small band would be driven off by a small contingent from Tubac, which managed to overtake and kill 15 of the rebels. But two years later, in 1758, more rebel bands were harassing the Guavavi mission during its Easter celebration. The next year they attacked Sonoida, killing one villager while stealing a number of horses. And that's just local revolts and doesn't even begin to touch the continual raiding by Apaches. It's during this turbulent time that a priest named Bernard Middendorf was sent north of San Javier del Bac. He was to serve as a resident priest among a group of natives who were farming fields of bean, squash, and watermelons in rich volcanic soil. The place was named by the natives as at the foot of the Black Hill or Mountain, which sounded something like Shuksan or Sejuksan. We know that Black Hill today as Tuamak Hill, west of A Mountain, and the place where they were farming as Tucson. Unfortunately, Middendorf is described by one source as a frail, consumptive, 33-year-old German who was not fluent in Spanish and, quote, completely ignorant of Pima customs and language, end quote. He arrived on January 5th, 1757 to a warm welcome, but, like we have seen time and again, the natives quickly tired of him and his religious scruples. In May, Middendorf and his military escort were attacked by what he called about 500 savage heathens, which chased them back to San Javier del Bac. It would be a while before the priest tried to set up a permanent shop in Tucson again. Just to round out the up-and-down decade of the 1750s, on September 7, 1759, Captain Juan Tomas Belderrein, the Basque captain of the new Presidio at Tubac, became ill and died. He had gone to Guavavi to see the priest there and died away from his post. His body would be buried under the altar of that mission. Taking Belderain's place was someone who we've actually already met, Juan Bautista de Anza the Younger. Fate had been kind to the younger Anza. Well, you know, a bit kinder, you know, after having killed his father before he was four years old. Anza the Elder's untimely death had left his widow, Maria Rosa, in some debt due to an agreement the Elder Anza had to collect tithes in the name of the crown. But she had both her father's and her husband's connections to fall back on, as both had been well-respected leading men of the community. For the younger Anza, the role of male role model was filled by his godfather and his father's cousin, Pedro Felipe de Anza. Pedro had lived with the family of both Janos and Fronteras, and was a successful and connected businessman in his own right. It is more than likely that he donated funds to help raise Ansa. He also may have grown close to Father Carlos Rojas, the Jesuit priest at Arispe who had baptized him. Though there is little in the way of documentation for this period of his life, it is probable that Rojas had an active role in education, which you might remember was a leading emphasis for the Jesuits as an order. In 1752, Ansa's brother-in-law stepped in and helped the now 16-year-old become a cadet at the Fronteras Presidio. We frankly don't know his motivations for joining the army, but many assume it has to do with trying to live up to the example of his father, who by now was enshrined in local memory as a valiant, honest, and brave captain. But no matter the rationale, Ansa took to the soldiering life. In 1755, now 19, he received his first commission as Alferez, or lieutenant. The rest of the decade was spent on continuous patrols either to preserve the peace, weed out would-be insurgents, or hunt down rebels. 
He seems to have quickly earned the trust of his superiors and fellow soldiers and was singled out for his courage. One Jesuit chronicler wrote that Anza possessed, quote, a solid disposition, valor, rapport with his soldiers. He has learned to fear no danger, to trample the barbarians, and to earn for himself the applause of Governor Mendoza of the province and all of the garrisons, end quote. All in all, not a bad resume. That's why optimism ran high in 1760 when it was announced that 24-year-old all-around wonderful soldier Juan Bautista de Anza, the son of all-around wonderful soldier Juan Bautista de Anza, was named to the coveted captaincy of the Tubac Presidio. But much like when his father took over the captaincy at Fronteras, there was a lot of work to do. A lot of 1760 was taken up with continuing to put down Pima rebellions. Early on in the year, he led a small contingent of troops to the still-depopulated Aravaca, where he came across natives in the act of scalping a soldier they had just killed. A quick skirmish ensued, which ended in 15 dead natives, though Anza himself was shot with an arrow. In September of the same year, his mother, who was living with him at Tubac, passed away. Her body, too, was interred under the altar at Guivavi. After her death, the bachelor Anza turned his attention to starting a family of his own. His chosen bride was a young woman from Arispe named Ana Maria Perez Serrano. However, getting her to the altar was something of a complicated affair. You see, Anza was required by law to submit a request to his commanding officer to be married and identifying the bride-to-be. The only problem is that his commanding officer, Governor and Captain General Juan de Mendoza, had died in November 1760, some five months before Anza submitted his petition, while he was campaigning against the Ceres. Bureaucracy being what it is in any age, the death of his superior meant that the petition could be held up indefinitely, or worse, be rejected by Mendoza's replacement. So Anza actually engages in a little bit of subterfuge here, writing in his petition that yeah, of course Mendoza totally knew about this and approved it before he died. Into this little scheme, he roped in the 72-year-old Father Felipe Segreser. Remember him from last week? If not, he was one of the three Jesuits installed by Anza's father and had been nursed back to health by Anza's mother after some natives may have attempted to poison him. With Segreser's support, Anza's petition was granted, and on June 24, 1761, he and Ana Maria wed at Arispe, the ceremony being conducted by his old friend and tutor, Father Rojas. Now, happily married, well, we assume happily, we have very little outside of Anza's professional records and nothing of Ana Maria's personal thoughts, the couple turned their attention back to living on the frontier. Anza continued to enjoy the popularity and goodwill from his soldiers that had won him the position in the first place, in fact, a review of the Tubac Presidio in 1766 revealed that Anza was selling goods to his men at prices that were even lower than the ones suggested by Rivera in the Reglamento of 1729. The inspector, the Marquess de Rubí, who we'll talk about more in two weeks, was impressed by how well-trained and disciplined the soldiers were. A lieutenant of Rubí's also noted the construction of a church at Tubac, built with money out of Anza's pocket. This church, named Santa Gertrudis, was the original church built on the spot where St. Anne stands today, next to the Tubac Presidio State Historic Park. However, though Anza was a popular and capable administrator, events were not taking it easy on him. The 1760s turned out much like the 1750s. A lot of revolts, 
running around to put down said revolts, and Apache attacks, Apache attacks, Apache attacks. By 1763, when a new priest arrived at Guivavi, he found it unsafe for anyone to work out in the fields or tend to livestock. In October of the same year, a somber delegation made its way to Tubac. Settlers in the San Luis Valley, specifically from the settlement of Buena Vista, had fled in the face of yet another wave of Apache attacks on their homes. They were requesting to leave their homes permanently and find relative shelter at Tubac and other presidios in northern Sonora. As part of this petition, they actually brought with them the body of Anza's sister-in-law, who had died during the last round of combat. Without asking for permission from his superiors, Anza granted their request. This is later going to come back and ding him. The new governor considered granting the petition as a mistake, especially because the next year the Jesuits and natives began filing grievances that their land was now being occupied by squatters. While the Spanish settlers were being forced from their homes, another group was moving into the area, but this time on the invitation of the regular forces. Apache raids and diseases were still causing depopulation across the various missions, visitas, and rancherias, so much so that the Jesuits feared they would soon be left desolate. So, in 1762, the Spanish invited the Subaipuris living along the San Pedro River to occupy the Santa Cruz near present-day Tucson on the condition that they would defend the area. The Subaipuris accepted the offer to move what seemed like more productive farmland and made the move. However, this produced further Spanish headaches. In their traditional territory, the Subaipuris had acted as something of a buffer between the Spanish-held Santa Cruz River Valley and the Apacheria. But with the Subaipuris now gone, it didn't take too long for the Apaches to notice that they had free reign in the area. Worse, they could now just follow the San Pedro south into Sonora and more easily raid settlements there. Whoops. Anza would later suggest inducing the Sobaipuris to move yet again to take over the settlements abandoned in the San Luis Valley. However, the Jesuit missionaries opposed the idea because it would take away from their dream to establish a resident priest at Tucson. And the Sobaipuris, despite complaints about their new home not being as productive as they hoped, made the argument that they chose when and where the tribe would move, and for now, they didn't want to go. Their leader also made the pointed argument that they had stayed loyal to Spain while nearly everyone else had revolted. So maybe the Spaniards for once could just mind their own business. One of the reasons that the frontier was proving so hostile and hard to control is that soldiers from Tubac were also being called south to fight in long-running wars against the Seris in northern Mexico. The Seris were a comparatively small tribe living in Sonora, but were as feared by the Spanish as much as the Apache. They were master marksmen with their bows, which was made even worse by their habit of using poison-tipped arrows that could cause near-instant death. Spanish troops had been at a near-continuous war with the Seris for years. I mentioned last week that Anza the Elder was told to be more aggressive with them in the late 1720s, and that Luis had led his Pima forces against them before his 1751 revolt, and there was still no end in sight. Anza recounted that in 1760 alone, he sent soldiers to help with expeditions against the Seris no less than five times. A Seri arrow is also the reason Governor Mendoza had been killed, delaying Anza's marriage request. In 1762, Anza's men were reported to have killed 30 Seris while out on patrol 
and in 1766, he was able to report that his troops had actually stolen the tribe's horses. Between Ceres to the south and Apaches to the north and west, people living in Tubac must have felt sort of trapped, or at least always living precariously on the edge of a knife. But the 1760s had one more great destabilizing surprise for everyone, the expulsion of the Jesuits from the Spanish Empire. To understand this order, let's jump back to 1759, when Carlos III ascended to the Spanish throne. This Carlos is the one who really kicked off all those Bourbon reforms we talked about last week, and that we will dwell more on in a couple weeks. With the help of willing and able ministers, the king launched a series of reforms throughout the empire, part of which we have briefly touched on in the form of the inspection at the Tubac Presidio in the 1760s. But in 1767, Carlos ordered the expulsion of every last single Jesuit priest in his empire. Now, the natural question you might be asking at this point is, okay, why? Well, everyone seems to have their own favorite pet theory about what set Carlos off. Some of the earliest sources straight up blame Freemasons. No kidding. Early state historian James H. McClintock traces the cause to the jealous and treacherous nature of the Spanish court. He also passes along a rumor that enemies of the Jesuits had given the king a forged letter, supposedly written by the upper-ups in the order, declaring him illegitimate. And this letter supposedly almost drove the king insane. Other, later historians go with the explanation that the reform-minded Carlos was most likely seeking to establish the crown's superiority. The Jesuits were an independent, powerful, and influential group whose supreme loyalty to the Pope meant a challenge to Carlos's absolutism. A biographer of Anson the Younger says Carlos III also blamed them as the guiding hand behind bread riots that erupted in Madrid in 1766. Carlos may have also possibly suspected them of plotting against his life. The Jesuits in the New World in particular were accused of challenging the king's authority and setting up independent theocracies at their missions. However, others say that the charge of sedition was just a flimsy pretext to carry out the plan to oust them. But really, one historian said it best when he observed that, quote, Locking away in his royal breast the reason for his decision, Carlos III decreed the Jesuits' expulsion in February 1767. I should note here that he is also following the lead of both Portugal and France, who had similarly expelled the order in 1759 and 1764, respectively. The decree, conveyed with the utmost secrecy, landed in the laps of administrators in New Spain a few months later. On the evening of June 24, 1767, officials in Mexico City caught everyone off guard as they swept down and rounded up all the Jesuit priests they could find. Orders were then sent north, reaching the governor of Sonora on July 11th, who turned right around and sent notices to all Presidio captains to execute the order in a similar surprise strike planned for July 23rd. When Anza unsealed the order, he must have reacted with disbelief. Remember that the Basque in Sonora and the Pimaria Alta were generally boosters of the Jesuits. Anza's own father had been inducted into the order. And the final blow was that Anza was also ordered to ride to Orispe and inform Father Rojas, the man who had both baptized him and performed his marriage, that he was no longer welcome. The thought behind this last part was the hope that Anza's relationship with Rojas would help persuade the priests to surrender peacefully and avoid any potential uprisings that could result. 
since a gag order was also instituted, we don't know how this meeting between the two went down. But Rojas and the other priests obeyed, and by August 1767, Ansa reported that, except for a priest who was too ill to move, the order had been carried out. The only insight we have into Anza's take of the affair was when he noted to the governor, quote, After all, the king commands it, and there may be more to it than we realize. The thoughts of men differ as much as the distance from earth to heaven, end quote. The aftermath of the expulsion was nothing short of chaotic. The appointed overseer of the former Jesuit missions simply handed the keys to the granaries over to the native inhabitants. These began laying into these provisions with reckless abandon, so much so that Anza himself personally stepped in and took the keys back. The next year, the Franciscans moved in to take over where the Jesuits had left off. At Quivavi was stationed Juan Crisostomo Gil de Bernabé, and at San Javier de Bac came Francisco Garces, who we will have much more to say about in coming episodes. As one source puts it, the Apaches were not long in greeting these new arrivals. Gil had been at his post for a month when the raiders struck the Visita of Sonoida, killing two Sobaipuris. On October 2nd, 1768, they also raided San Javier del Bac. A group of soldiers and a native general were sent after the raiders, but they rode right into an ambush. The entire expedition was cut down. In November, the Apaches were at the doors of the Swampka Mission, which they besieged and then burned. The next year, so mid-February 1769, they struck at Tumacacri and were at San Javier del Bac again three days later. Hill reported that the Odom peoples had abandoned villages between Tucson and the Gila River, giving the Apaches free access to the Altar Valley. Most of the Hispanic residents, and many of the natives, gathered to Tubac for some semblance of protection. Not counting the garrison, their dependents and servants, there were more than 200 Spanish settlers living at the town. When you add in the Odom, that number rises to nearly 500, one of the largest populations the Presidio would see during the Spanish period. To these, the future must have seemed pretty bleak. Continuous Apache raids, tales of warring Seres, and the continual struggle for survival in the Sonoran Desert. What Anza was thinking during this period is not recorded, but it is possible that as the 1760s came to an end, his thoughts were already drifting away to bigger dreams. Because it would be his destiny to complete his father's desire of pushing westward to that mythical place called California. So join me next week as we catch up with Anza in the early 1770s, when he will push into the unknown on a path that will eventually see him set up the site for a presidio on a foggy Pacific Coast bay called San Francisco. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.